0: Welcome to the serialized audiobook Contagious, book 2 of the Infected Trilogy, written by number 1 New York Times best-selling novelist Scott Sigler, performed by the author. Contagious is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com/contagious. Daddy is so silly. The building was perfect. Rusted, once-white metal beams held up a peaked ceiling way above. There were holes in that ceiling. Through them, Chelsea could see little patches of early morning sky, tiny stars still flickering their fading light. She could see the heavens. It was such a long building. Her Mickey Mouse watch said it took her 30 seconds to to run from one end of the trash strewn floor to the other. On one side of the building, a second deck and even a third deck looked out over a long, open, central area. There was lots of graffiti. Some naughty words, too. If anyone else came in to paint bad words, Chelsea would have Mr. Jenkins take care of them. They'd found a big entrance in the back. Mr. Jenkins called it a loading dock. Up above was a metal roll-up door, stuck three-quarters of the way open. Mr. Jenkins said it worked exactly like a roll of paper towels, that people used to just pull it down, but it was rusty and broken. Graffiti-covered plywood blocked the rest of the entrance. Mr. Jenkins had to drive the Winnebago right through the plywood, and the whole wall fell in like one of those drawbridges in the princess stories. He drove over it, cracking the wood in many places, but then he and Daddy and old Sam Collins and Mr. Corvaz were able to put it back up again. The Winnebago was inside, safely out of sight. Which was good, because right about the time they put that plywood back, Chelsea sensed that the dollies were almost ready to come out and play. Chelsea made Mr. Jenkins put all the dolly daddies side by side in front of the Winnebago. The rising sun was already spilling a little light into the building through the small holes in the roof, but she wanted the daddies in the headlights, so she could see everything. Their heads were closest to the Winnebago. All their tootsies pointed away looked kind of like nap time at summer camp. Mr. Jenkins tied them up. He tied up Daddy, Mr. Lafreniere, Mr. Gaines, old Sam Collins, and Danny Corvez. Mommy took one of Mr. Jenkins' knives and cut off their clothes. They all shivered a lot. A little bit of snow had blown into the building. Fine white powder drifted up against fallen boards and broken bricks. Every now and then, a gust of wind found a way through the walls and boarded up windows, swirling the powder in slow arcs. Then the dolly daddies all started screaming. That was annoying. Chelsea told Mommy to stuff their mouths with some of the cut-up clothing. That helped. Chelsea sat down and watched. They were all tied up, but they still kicked and thrashed around. Everyone except Daddy. Daddy was looking at Chelsea. His eyes seemed very sad. He was trying to say something. He wasn't screaming like the others, even though the dollies on his arm were starting to bounce in and out. Chelsea stood and walked over to him. She pulled the piece of t-shirt out of his mouth. Chelsea, honey, Daddy said. It was hard to understand his words because he was breathing so hard. Please, baby girl, make them, make them stop. Chelsea laughed. Oh, Daddy, you're so funny. No, honey, I'm I'm not joking with you. The triangles bounced out farther, making interesting moving shadows in the far wall. Daddy's face scrunched shut. He ground his teeth and let out a little noise. It'll all be over soon, Daddy. His eyes opened again. They blinked so fast. He was breathing like he'd just come back from a run. Chelsea, you have power over these things. You can you can shut them down. One of old Sam Collins' hatchlings popped free. It arced through the air, lit up by the headlights. How pretty. The muffled screams got louder. Chelsea, Daddy yelled. I'm not, I'm, I'm not kidding around. You, you stop them or you're in big trouble. Tears leaked from his eyes. Snot bubbled from his nose. He started to kick. The triangles on his arm were coming out really far now. Daddy? God wants them to come out. Why would I stop them? Because I'm going to die, you little bitch. Daddy's chest heaved. His eyes opened and shut, open and shut. Please, Chelsea, oh my God, it hurts. They're screaming in my head, please. Make it stop. One of Daddy's hatchlings popped free. Daddy screamed really loud. He was just confused, that's all. Now he got to go to heaven. Anyone who really believed in heaven would be happy to die. Why, the longer they lived, the more chances they might do something bad, then wind up in hell. She didn't understand why people prayed to God to stay alive. It just didn't make sense. He drew a big breath to scream again, and Chelsea stuffed the t-shirt back into his mouth. I love you, Daddy, she said. Say hello to Jesus for me. Daddy's scream stopped a few seconds later. Chelsea walked around, picking up the little hatchlings and taking them inside the Winnebago. She wanted to make sure that they were safe and warm. The Dolly Mama Bernadette screamed so hard that flecks of blood flew out of her mouth. The containment cell walls would have muffled most of the sound, but Margaret had insisted that the room's microphones pump the audio throughout the comm system. If the men were going to let Bernadette Smith die, Margaret would make sure they heard every last second of it. Dew was there. So was Clarence. Daniel Chapman was there as well, holding a handheld, high-def camera. The two fixed cameras built into the containment cell would catch everything, but Dan had his in case they needed specific shots. Dew had asked Perry to come. Perry hadn't shown. Only an hour earlier, Perry had told Margaret what to expect. She wasn't surprised he'd taken a pass. 9.37 a.m., Margaret said. The triangles are beginning to move. She watched, horrified, as the triangles, now inch-high pyramids, started to bounce up and down under Bernadette's skin. Sweet Jesus, Dew said. Don't you look away, Margaret hissed. Somehow, Bernadette found the energy to scream even louder. The triangles bounced out farther, stretching her skin, tearing it. Little jets of blood shot out from the edges. Please help me. Make it stop. Make them stop shouting in my head. Dr. Chapman, Margaret said. Put that camera down and sedate that woman. Do not do that, Chapman, Dew said. It could damage the triangles. Margaret turned to look at Dew. Her anguished soul longed for any excuse to look away from Bernadette, and this one fit the bill. Dew, you fucking bastard. We're torturing that woman. I'm not going to take a chance that your potions will kill the hatchlings, Dew said. This'll all be over soon. Even as he spoke, he stared unflinching at the dying woman. 9.41 a.m., Dan said. Patient is going into VTAC. The words made Margaret snap around to look in the cell, made her instinctively take a step forward before she remembered that she wasn't allowed to save the patient. But Margaret could take away her pain. Everyone in the trailer wore a hazmat suit, sealed, airtight, protected. Margaret moved to the containment cell's door and started punching buttons on the touchscreen. First the pound sign, then five, then four, then five, then. Strong hands grabbed her wrists and pulled her away. Clarence's hands. Margaret, stop it! She struggled against him, but it was useless. He was too strong. Let me go, you monster! How could she have been so wrong about him? Dew leaned forward to look at the touch screen, then at Dan. What was she doing? Dan looked away. Dan? Dew said. Answer me, now. She was trying to do an emergency decontamination, Dan said. If she hits another five, every decontam nozzle in both trailers starts spraying. It would kill everything not wearing a hazmat suit, including the patient. Dew turned to look at Margaret. You spell out the word kill to do that. Cute. Otto, don't let her go. We have to finish this. Dew turned back to the horror show inside the containment cell. Margaret did the same. She didn't want to watch, but she had to. The triangles bounced out almost a foot before their tails and Bernadette's ravaged skin pulled them back. The one on her chest jumped up and down like the heart of a cartoon boy who's just seen the cartoon girl of his dreams. The one on her hip tore free first, shooting across the tiny room to hit the wall. Barely an inch high, it wiggled on the floor, black tentacles writhing in a soupy combination of human blood and purple slime. Her arm went next. The hatchling severed the artery as it launched free, spraying blood all over the clear containment cell wall. The heartbeat monitor beeped out in erratic panicked pace without rhythm. The chest triangle finally broke its fleshy tether, shooting upward on a geyser of blood that splashed against the ceiling. Margaret heard the droning monotone of the EKG machine sounding out a flatline. Shut that fucking thing off, Dew said. Dan lowered the camera and quickly punched a button on the panel. The flatline sound vanished, leaving only silence. Margaret put her gloved hands against the transparent wall. Blood drops trickled down the inside of the glass, rolling towards the floor. They left little, see-through streaks of red. The three hatchlings tried to stand on weak tentacle legs. They managed a few, wobbly steps, filling the air with strange clicking sounds. Gradually, they slowed. Their black, vertical eyes blinked slower and slower, heavy-lidded, sleepy, until they closed and the little creatures stopped moving. Margaret rested her helmeted head against the glass. She checked the red clock in the far wall. Time of death, 9.44 a.m., she said weakly. I hope it's worth it, Do. I really hope it's worth it. Dew still hadn't moved. He stared into the cell, stared at the body. It's not, Margaret. It never is. Eyes on the prize. It was only a matter of time now. The orbital had long since mapped all human satellites capable of detecting its presence. It had also identified a few ground-based observatories that might be able to see it. In all, the orbital tracked 11 devices that could spot it, if only they looked in the right direction. And now, five of them were. One was unfortunate, but not a cause for concern just random chance. Two was pushing the boundaries of coincidence and meant it had possibly been spotted. As the day progressed, the orbital saw a third, then a fourth, then a fifth device point its way. There was no question. The humans knew. It was only a matter of time before they attacked. The probability tables rated this at 100%. The same tables predicted a 74% chance that the first attack would destroy the Orbital. It had some defenses, but it was small and designed for stealth and reliability, not combat. It could not fight an entire world. The Orbital had prepared Chelsea as best it could. It would probably be up to her to finish the doorway. Chance of success? Incalculable. The Orbital simply did not have enough data. The orbital ran through the tables and arrived at the final entry in its extensive decision tree. If a planet could resist colonization, detect the orbital, and attack it, that planet qualified as a long-term threat. A threat that had to be eliminated. The orbital began to modify its final
1: probe. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Peekaboo, we see you. Gutierrez walked into the smaller situation room like a suit-wearing cage fighter rushing to the ring, aggressive and excited to get it on. Tom Maskell and Vanessa Colburn trailed in his wake, the boxers' entourage shining with their own intense auras. Ah, Murray thought, the energy of youth. Gutierrez, Maskell, and Colburn slid into their seats. Donald Martin and all the Joint Chiefs were already present. A full house once again. Murray was thrilled that Vanessa had made it. He wanted her to see this. Okay, Murray, Gutierrez said. I just cut short a meeting with the Russian ambassador about this Finland crisis to hear your urgent news, so let's go. Mr. President, Murray said. Montoya's weather theory panned out. We think we've located the source of the infection. Murray called up a map of the Midwest on the Situation Room's big screen. This is the location of the first construct, he said. A red dot appeared at Wajamega, Michigan. These blue dots represent approximate locations of the host seven days before we attacked that construct, and the green lines represent wind direction. Gutierrez studied the map briefly, then nodded. And here is the same information for the hosts associated with Mather, South Bloomingville, Glidden, and Gaylord, Michigan. As Murray spoke each city's name, he added a yellow dot to the map. This information provided enough data to triangulate a specific search zone, Murray tapped some more keys. The map zoomed in on a grid that included southwest Michigan, northwest Ohio, and northeast Indiana. But that's still a huge area, Gutierrez said. Yes, sir, Murray said, but it helped us focus the hunt. It took our image processing computers three days to identify visual anomalies, but by doing so, we found this. Murray clicked the keys again. The map vanished, replaced by a grainy photo Of what looked like a translucent, teardrop-shaped rock pointed at both ends. All of them, including Vanessa, sat back in their chairs. Murray felt like a conductor reaching the emotional apex of a symphony. The room filled with excitement and relief. They finally had a target. They could finally hit back. Son of a bitch, Gutierrez said. NASA is convinced it's artificial, Murray said. It's very small, about the size of a beer keg. How could we have not seen this? There's a lot here we don't understand, sir, Murray said. The thing is stationary, hovering 40 miles above South Bend, Indiana. The object seems to bend light around it, which makes it basically invisible, but the image analysts identified a visual fluctuation. They had to write a program that combined images from five different sources, then create this computer-generated model so this isn't a real picture. No, sir, Murray said. They explained it to me with an analogy. Imagine a contact lens dropped in a swimming pool. It's not actually invisible, but if you don't know the contact lens is there, you're never going to see it. If I tell you to look in one corner at the shallow end, forget the rest of the pool, look for something that might stand out just a little, and you had a dozen people helping you, eventually, you'd see the lens and figure out what it is. NASA doesn't know how the thing can just hover there. It doesn't drift. It should take a ton of energy to keep something stationary like that, yet it doesn't give off an energy signature. That's supposed to be impossible. How impossible? As in contrary to the laws of physics impossible, Murray said. But it's there all the same. Gutierrez stared at the fuzzy double teardrop up on the screen. Are there more of these objects? Now that they know exactly what anomalies to look for, they're doing global searches. This object appears to be the only one of its kind. Why us, Gutierrez asked. Why not Russia? Or China? What does NASA say about that? They think it was just bad luck, Mr. President. If this really is an alien craft, it probably locked in over the first landmass it found. We'll probably never know, unless you want to try and communicate with it. Communicate? Gutierrez laughed. It's already communicated. Its message is loud and clear. This is amazing. Murray, your team is just amazing. And no, I don't want to try and communicate with this thing. I want to blow it out of the goddamn sky. We thought you might choose that option, Murray said. General Monroe? Murray sat as the Air Force General rose to discuss his attack plan. Murray looked across the table and saw that Vanessa was watching him, not the screen. She wore her normally cold expression, but Murray was learning how to read her. On her best day, she couldn't hope to ever match the show Murray had just put on, and she knew it. Did the corners of her mouth reveal just a touch of envy? He turned his attention back to the screen and watched General Monroe outline his strategy. General Charlie Ogden. No point in calling himself a colonel anymore. As Chelsea's top military leader, now he truly was a general. He could promote Cope while he was at it, but why bother? Corporal Cope had such a nice ring to it. What's the latest from whiskey company, Corporal? Captain Lodge reports zero traffic at all checkpoints, Cope said. He suspects that your readiness drill is actually a way for you to get X-ray company into heated tents while his men stand out in the cold. Sergeant Major Nielsen also called, wanted me to tell him on the sly if you had an op plan and if he could get in on it. And what did you tell him? I told him this was just a boring drill, sir, Cope said. And I took the liberty of suggesting that if he snooped around for more information, you'd have him on the first transfer back to Fort Bragg. Ogden smiled. Cope showed initiative and Ogden needed that kind of person around. Better a clever corporal than a stupid lieutenant. Pack up my things, corporal. I'll be leaving tonight. Cope moved off to pack Ogden's clothes and effects. General Charlie Ogden couldn't wait for nightfall. He couldn't wait to drive down to Detroit to actually meet Chelsea. But it was only 1430, and he couldn't make the sun move faster across the sky. He needed the time to plan anyway. 46 HOURS TO GO If the gate opened up undetected, everything would work out fine. General Ogden's job, however, was to assume that the gate would not go undetected. The primary threat remained the Division Ready Force from the 82nd Airborne. 600 soldiers, probably 8 hours away from parachuting and on top of any trouble spot. He had, at best, 120 men. No matter what strategy he created, he couldn't hold out for long against five-to-one odds. That meant he had to make sure any battle ended before the DRF could fully respond. An eight-hour window. Far inside that eight-hour window, however, sat the other two Domrek companies waiting at Fort Bragg. Two hundred and forty men he'd let himself. If alerted, they could deploy in Detroit potentially within two hours. How could he keep them out of the game entirely? And even that didn't account for the forces already in the area. Detroit police, cops from surrounding suburbs, SWAT teams, and Michigan State Police. Not as heavily armed, not as well trained, but a lot of guns was still a lot of guns. He'd also have to find a way to tie up all of those. If conflict came, Ogden would have no air support. His men would face Apaches, Ospreys, F-15s, and probably even a squadron of A-10 tank killer fighters stationed at the Selfridge Air National Guard Base 30 minutes north of Detroit. So that was the scenario. Do everything possible to keep things quiet, to keep a fight from breaking out. If a fight did break out, he had to choose the battlefield, delay the troops from Fort Bragg, tie up the Detroit police, keep the gate hidden from air support, and make sure the gate was wide open and pumping in angels well inside of the eight-hour DRF window. A General stars certainly didn't come easy. Corporal Cope, Ogden said. When you're finished packing, get on the line with the companies at Fort Bragg. I want to arrange an immediate transfer. The exterminators have been fighting hard. It's time to rotate out some troops. McDonald's Run so many dollies. Chelsea sat in the back of the Winnebago, hatchlings crawling all over her. Their black tentacles tickled. It felt like little kisses, like she was covered head to toe in smoochies. They would walk on her, then jump around, maybe cling to a curtain, or go eat a piece of the daddies. Mr. Jenkins had put some daddy parts on plastic so his Winnebago carpet wouldn't get messy, but the triangle's tentacle legs were still tracking spots of blood all over the place. Chelsea stood, carefully, so as not to startle the dollies, and walked to the Winnebago's small fridge. There was a portable TV on top, black and white, with a tiny screen playing the 7 o'clock news. She'd watched some cartoons on it, but cartoons didn't really interest her that much anymore. The grown-ups watched the news, and Chelsea was surprised to find that she liked it. There were only three ice cream bars left in the little fridge. Those half a jar of mayonnaise, and a wrinkled hot dog that might have been older than Chelsea herself. She pulled out an ice cream bar, tore off the paper, and started eating. But her stomach rumbled for something other than dessert. Mr. Jenkins and Mommy, come here. Seconds later, they ran through the door and shut it behind them to keep out the cold. They were both shivering. Whoa, Mommy said. They're bigger already. The dollies are growing fast, Chelsea said. Pretty soon they'll start building the gate. Are you getting enough stuff? Mr. Jenkins nodded. There's a lot of wood in this building. I spent the whole night dragging in sticks and bushes, stuff like that. And I found a lot of trash, Mommy said. Mr. Burkle is out collecting as well. Chelsea smiled. Mommy and Mr. Jenkins sounded like they knew what to do. Mommy, I'm hungry. I want McDonald's. I don't know if there's one around here, Mommy said. Besides, it's dark out. But I want McDonald's. Mommy took a step back. She was scared. She should be scared. Daddy was gone, but Chelsea could still make Mr. Jenkins use the Spanky Spoon just as well as Daddy had. Mr. Jenkins pulled out a cell phone. Give me a second, Chelsea. I'll Google it and see if I can find one, okay? Chelsea nodded. And I want ice cream bars. Lots of them. I saw a party store not too far from here, Mommy said. I could go grab food there. Found one, Mr. Jenkins said, looking up from his phone. It's a couple of miles from here. Go get me McDonald's, Mommy. I want McDonald's. Your mother shouldn't go, Mr. Jenkins said. This is a bad neighborhood. It's nighttime. A woman on her own out there won't go well. I'll walk, but it's two miles away, so it might take me an hour and a half. Can you take Mr. Corvus' motorcycle? Chelsea asked. Mr. Jenkins shook his head. No, I don't know how to ride. Then walk, Chelsea said, and make it fast. Mr. Jenkins nodded rapidly. Do you have enough money? Mommy asked. I'll find an ATM, he said. I'll stock up. We're going to be here for a few more days. Two more, Chelsea said. Two more days, and then the angels come. Now get going, and don't you dare forget the ice cream? Mr. Jenkins ran off, his fat shaking with every step. Mommy ran out behind him before the Winnebago door could even close. They did what Chelsea said, and that was as it should be. They all did what she said. All but one. Chelsea closed her eyes and spread her mind, reaching out. Where was he? Where was the boogeyman? Was he thinking of her? Was he afraid of her? If not, she would make him afraid. She found him, but she couldn't connect. Something was blocking her. Chauncey. What are you doing, Chauncey? Are you stopping me from scaring the boogeyman? I told you not to connect to him. And I told you you're not the boss of me. Chelsea, the Destroyer is not a toy. He has stopped the Angels four times. If he finds you, he will kill you. When you connect to him, you risk everything. Chelsea felt angry. Not just at the Boogeyman, but at Chauncey. No one can tell me what to do, not anymore. Chelsea waited for him to reply. He didn't. Instead, hundreds of images smashed into her brain like rapid fire visual lightning. Images of the Boogeyman burning hosts strangling them, hitting them, killing them. Chauncey, stop it! She started to shake, yet the images kept coming. Images of soldiers shooting dollies, stabbing them, stomping them. Pretty dolly bodies smashing, purple stuff squishing out long, gloopy jets. Chauncey, no! She couldn't breathe, yet still the images came. Images of gates, beautiful gates, exploding, disintegrating, breaking into tiny pieces and the pieces rotting to blackness. She felt that pressure in her bladder again. Okay, I won't contact him. I promise. The images stopped. Chelsea took a deep breath. The boogeyman. He wasn't a game at all. He was death. For real death, not movie death. Now you understand. If you connect with him, you bring death upon your people. She ran her hand down to where her bathing suit went. The front of her pants were a little damp. Chauncey had caused that, but it wasn't his fault. He wasn't the one who killed, who burned, who destroyed. He wasn't the one who'd made her pee her pants a second time. It was the boogeyman's fault. And sooner or later, she would make him pay. No means no. Another dark night at the ruins of Clan Jewel. Cold as shit. Again. Dew hated the cold. He, Margaret, and Perry stood in what once had been the Jewel's kitchen. A bright half moon lit up the snow in a silvery light. Barely an inch of fluff already covered most of the blackened remains, a layer of white sitting on top of cindered chunks of wood and warped appliances. They stood there, out in the cold, because Perry still refused to go inside the trailer. He wouldn't go near the hatchlings. Perry, they're locked in individual cages, Margaret said. They can't get to you. She had changed. Duke could hear it in her voice. So much anger in her now, so different from the Margaret Montoya he'd met months ago. She'd changed after Amos, devastated. But now... Now an unhealthy dose of rage brewed in her little chest. There's no way they can get out of those cages, she said. It's not that, Perry said. His words sounded strained, broken, as if he had to work to complete a sentence. He stood still, but his upper body bobbed slightly back and forth. Perry, Dew said, you gotta sack up. Perry shook his head, shook it violently, made him look like a retarded dog. Look, Dew said, something is blocking you, but if you're close to the triangles, you can hear? Perry nodded. Yeah, when I was standing right there, I could hear them. I could hear her. That's the point, Dew said. We don't know where the next gate is, Perry. The jewels have to be there. If we find them, we find the gate. Chelsea talked to you. You have to go back in there and see if she makes contact again. You have to do this, Margaret said, her voice tight and cold. We are not going to let that woman have died for nothing. Perry shook his head again. His eyes remained wide, his nostrils flaring with each breath. Perry, Margaret said, you fought through so much. Tell me why you're afraid of this little girl. She's not a little girl anymore, Perry said. She's something else, She can, she can make people do things. We're with you, kid, Dew said. We'll be right there, okay? The answer is no, Dew, Perry said. You have to stop asking me to go in there. You just have to. Those hatchlings are in their own little cages, Dew said. They cannot get to you. You need to stop being such a pussy. And Dew never saw Perry's hand, not even a blur. One second, he was shaking and nodding like a rabid St. Bernard. The next, Dew felt a cast-iron vice on his throat, and his feet dangled a foot off the ground. You don't get it, Perry screamed. You just don't get it. Dew clawed at Perry's fingers, trying to isolate one, to bend it back and break it. But even the kid's fingers were strong. Dew couldn't pry one free. Margaret grabbed Perry's arm. She might as well have swung from a tree limb for all the effects she had, Perry, put him down. Perry shook Dew. Shook him. Dew's vision blacked out for a moment, then came back. He had only a few seconds left. He kicked out, clumsily, trying to get his actions under control. One foot connected, but he'd kicked Margaret, not Perry. She grabbed at her left thigh and fell to the ground. Dew suddenly found himself down there as well, coughing and spitting. Perry was so big So strong, so fast. Dew now knew it had been nothing but dumb luck he'd won that fight. I'm not afraid of what she'll do to me, Perry screamed. I'm afraid of what she'll make me do to you. Dew rolled onto his back and looked up. Sooty snow melted into the seat of his pants. Perry was bent over him, staring down with insane eyes. Saliva flew when he talked. Perry jabbed his finger repeatedly into his temple, punctuating his words. Don't you get it? They rewrote my fucking brain. And when I go near those triangles, I can hear her. She's fucking powerful, man. I don't want you to end up like Bill. She told me to kill you. Dew hawked a loogie and spit. It came out thick with blood. So why didn't you? Perry didn't say anything. The insanity slowly left his eyes. Why? Dew said. If she's so powerful, why didn't you just kill me when she told you to? Why didn't you just kill me now? Because. Because you can take me. You can beat me up. Dew laughed, but the pain in his throat changed the laugh to a cough. (laughs) Kid, you could have broken my neck just now. You didn't. So if this little girl has control over you, why am I still alive? The insane look faded away completely. Perry stood straight, stared at Dew for a few more seconds, then turned and walked away. Margaret rose to one knee. Her hands held her left thigh and her face was wrinkled with pain. You kicked me. Sorry, Dew said. My aim was off. I can't imagine why. Dew slowly got to his feet, then reached down and helped Margaret up. She let out a long breath. Jesus, she said. You're not the most sensitive guy in the world, are you? You need to stop being such a pussy? Did you really think that was going to motivate him somehow? He's a guy, Dew said. That kind of thing usually works with us. Margaret shook her head. Can't you men ever just talk something out? You're right. Women are so much more logical, Dew said. Maybe I should have shown him my boxer-size technique. Margaret rolled her eyes. Fine, you've got me there. But hear me, Dew. Marcus and Gitch are in the trailer, mopping up Bernadette's blood. You will get Perry to go in there and talk to those things, or that woman died for nothing. She pointed her finger in Dew's face. Do you understand me? Such anger in those eyes. She didn't even look like Margot anymore. This was a new woman one he'd helped create. I understand, Dew said. I'll get through to him. Margaret walked back to the trailer, leaving Dew alone in the burned-out, snow-covered kitchen. You have been listening to Contagious, Book 2 of the Infected Trilogy, written by Scott Sigler, performed by the author, produced by Empty Set Entertainment.